0: Welcome to Covenant Presbyterian Church of Fort Smith's weekly sermon podcast. Covenant is a church devoted to theological depth, intimate relationships, joyous worship, relentless evangelism, and sacrificial service. Coming up, a sermon from our series, Ecclesiastes, Life Under the Sun. Here now is our pastor, Dr. John Clayton. Turn with me today to Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, continuing our way through the book of Ecclesiastes, today we will be looking at uh, verses 16 of chapter 8 into chapter 9, verse 10. Um, I will remind you. We're not breaking any rules. You can jump across chapters. It's okay. They weren't there to begin with. They're artificial constructs, and we're thankful for chapter and verse. Uh, But I think that starting in verse 16 and working into verse 10 of chapter 9 is is helpful. And I think it gives us a good understanding of the context and Solomon's argument here. So today, we're going to begin uh, in chapter 8. At the end of chapter eight with verse sixteen. This is Pew Bible, page five hundred and fifty-seven. Hear now the reading of God's holy and errant and inspired word. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun that the same event happens to all. Also the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die. But the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. Let's go to Him in prayer. O Lord our God, make Your Word a swift word, passing from ear to heart, from the heart to the lip in conversation, that as the rain returns not empty, so neither may Your Word, but accomplish that for which it is given, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. In the remake of the movie, The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, starring Ben Stiller, the first scene begins with Walter sitting in his tidy, meticulously clean kitchenette, balancing his checkbook. The scene is colored in muted blues, conveying the monocolored, monotonous, mundane life that Walter leads. But within minutes, we learn that this is not the case with Walter's imaginary life. Escaping reality in his daydreams, Walter is the death-defying hero who rescues the love of his life, so he thanks his co-worker Cheryl, from a burning building and rescues Cheryl's dog as well. The problem is, of course, that daydreams don't last. He must come back to reality. Problems at work. Struggles with family. The ordinariness of life. But for Walter, real life, real moments, are simply interludes in between dreams. The parody is perfect, in my opinion. Picturing how many people live their lives, trudging through day-to-day life in between their preferred forms of escapism. And it's, it's no way to live life, but one day turns into two, turns into 365, as we numb ourselves to life amusing ourselves to death i wonder i wonder how many of us have lost the wonder of life the radiance of a sunrise the majesty of a mountain's silhouette a summer shower a child's laughter a friend's hug a favorite hymn, a quiet prayer. Sometimes we need reminding. Life is beautiful. And I think this is where Ecclesiastes is at its best, in my opinion. Solomon will not let us slide into daydreams of how good life could be nor zone out as we walk through daily life. Reality, hear me clearly, reality is better than fantasy. When we see God glorifying beauty in the ordinary. A crispy baguette, smoked Gouda cheese, and a glass of Merlot. Are you kidding me? (laughs) They beat the finest five-star meal of your imagination. Getting up, getting dressed, getting out, beats, sleeping, slouching, sloughing the day away every single day. Learning to love someone selflessly for life far surpasses the selfish impulses and fantasies of your flesh. And a need met by a gift used enjoys the satisfaction of a job well done. You see, life really is beautiful. But you must live it and love it to know it. A part of the recognizing of the beauty of life is, believe it or not, is accepting life's mysteries. If you will never be satisfied unless you understand it all, newsflash, you will never be satisfied. There is wisdom in knowing our limits, starting with the limits of wisdom. With all His God-given wisdom, Solomon says that he sought to know and to see what God is doing in our lives. And it results in a threefold confession. In fact, look at verses 16 and 17 with me. Seek Solomon's confession with me. Man cannot find out. He will not find it out. He cannot find it out. Solomon's repetition is intentional. Embrace the mystery. In William Cooper's God Moves in a Mysterious Way, we sing these words. Deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. And I love that hymn, and we're going to sing it, but what I like about that is Cooper puts the emphasis on God's skill, and God's design, and God's will. But, we have to remember also that Cooper reminds us that what God does is deep in unfathomable minds. Indeed, we cannot find it out. Embracing the mystery of God's work in our lives does not mean that everything is a mystery, that nothing can be known. That's contrary to Scripture. Here's the balance. Moses taught the Israelites this. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of the law. God revealed, according to the first chapter of Romans, God revealed the in, His invisible attributes. Namely, His eternal power and divine nature in creation. And He has given His special revelation in His Word. We are not only without excuse in what God has revealed, but he's re- He has revealed Himself perfectly in the person of Jesus Christ who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And it is through faith, through faith in Christ alone that we are born again, that we are justified as righteous, that we are adopted as a child of God, that we are sanctified unto Christ's likeness and that we are bound for glory. It is in Christ alone that we know that God is working all things together for good. Not a good defined by the world, the flesh, and the devil, but the godly good of conforming us into the image of Christ Jesus, including, including, and this is where Solomon is taking us, including all of the mysterious twists and turns of this life. Beautifully used by God for our good and His glory. Now, we must be careful to read life through the lens of worldly judgment. To see the world as the world sees it, as opposed to the world as seen through the lens of a child of God. For example, does faith in And obedience to Christ guarantee good times ahead? Do trials and tribulations or tragedy, do they reveal disobedience? Can you look, think about this, can you look at the circumstances of someone else's life and say, by virtue of the circumstances of their life, I can tell if God is favoring them or if there is disfavor. Can you do that? Job's friends thought you could. Solomon says, No, you cannot. God only knows. Our deeds for, or can also be translated, our service to God, Solomon says, they're in the hand of God. The secret place, to quote Moses. The secret things of God. It is God's judgment of our deeds that matters. And it is His purpose that prevails. And so, hear me clearly, because I think many evangelicals practice this, we must avoid practicing karma Christianity. You know what karma Christianity is? (laughs) Well, you see it practiced all the time. Well, they were disobedient to God. That bad thing happened, so said Job's friends. Ah, look at the blessings in favor of God and that obedient person, so says the, blessed, the friends of Job. <laughs> but, but what Solomon says is in this cautioning against karma Christianity is when we believe in the perfect correlation in which godliness rewards good things and wickedness renders punishment, it's contrary to what we see in real life. It's a myth. Solomon puts it this way, pointedly: it is the same for all. Succinct and clear. Righteous and wicked people get cancer. Hurricanes hit the homes of the good and the evil. Job's children died because of his righteousness. Wicked Zedekiah's children died because of his wickedness. God is pleased when we keep a vow. That's a truth. But his sun rises and his rain falls even on those who take God's name in vain. Such are the mysteries of life which render not God's actions arbitrary, but here's what it does reveal. It reveals that our clarity is clouded at best. Every recipient of God's common grace presumes upon its repetition, despite our undeserving nature. Sinner and saint alike are deserving of death. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of that sin is death. And so, all who deserve to die, (laughs) die, right? An unnatural finality... But a truth for every son and daughter of Adam. And a decomposing corpse has no knowledge, no reward, no remembrance, no passion, whether good or evil. Solomon says, What about love? What about hate? What about envy? Nothing. A decomposing corpse? Nothing. Ashes in the ground? Nothing. No share of inheritance in this life under the sun. Now, at this point, you may say, where's the Christian perspective here? This sounds profoundly unchristian, contrary to the gospel. And it's here that we need to be careful and be good students of the word to read the wisdom of Solomon in context. Solomon here is not contradicting immortality. He's not talking about it at all. We need to be careful to read things in that are not there. Instead, here is what Solomon is emphasizing. And I might add morbidly. The sad reality of death. And the appreciation of life through understanding the sad reality of death. A dirty dog is better than a dead lion for only one reason. The dog is alive. That's it. If you're looking for a deeper meaning there in Ecclesiastes, you're not going to find it. That's it. That's, that's the meaning. Yeah. Being alive is better than being ashes in the ground. That's the point. Let me put it another way. I have a friend whose wife has cancer. And despite all medical treatments up to this point, the cancer continues to show up. They've decided to resort to chemotherapy. But before starting, (coughs) the doctor in his wisdom said, before we start the chemotherapy, you need to go on a long vacation. Just get away. Take a long trip together. What do you think that was like? Do you think they treasured their time together? (laughs) Do you think their walks were a little slower? Their conversation a little sweeter? Their embraces a little longer? (laughs) I don't know. And I didn't ask him. But I tell you what it's done is it's caused me to stop and reflect on all the God-given pleasures of this life. How undeserving I am. And really, how beautiful life is. And yet, how often do we take these happy pleasures of God for granted? The sage says, One who is full loathes honey, but to the one who is hungry, everything bitter is sweet. Now, that's true, but also metaphorically true, right? The hungrier we are, the better food tastes. And the more we appreciate the simple pleasures of God that He gives us, the more beautiful life is. Solomon says, God has already approved it. Our enjoyment, He's approved it. What He gives, He's approved it. Let me translate it this way. God is pleased in our pleasure. How about that for a gospel truth? So Solomon, and I might add, if you're counting with me now as we do our study through Ecclesiastes, now for the sixth time, in this book, and he ain't done for the sixth time, Solomon commends enjoyment. In fact, in this passage, he commands it Go, eat, drink, enjoy, do. Those are all imperatives in the Hebrew. He's commanding us to enjoy the happy pleasures of God in this life. Go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. See? Solomon was a Presbyterian. (laughs) But the truth conveyed is that food and drink are not merely fuel for the furnace. They're pleasures to be enjoyed. I mean, think back to the very beginning. Didn't God say in the beginning, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden except for that one? And it is no wonder that as many came to faith in Christ in the early church, when we're reading in Acts chapter 2, what it says is that they ate together in one another's homes. They received their food, quote, with glad and generous hearts praising God. Isn't that beautiful? New converts to Christ, they're eating and drinking together in one another's homes thanking God for what He has given them, the simple pleasures of food and drink. Who more, who more, I ask you, than those saved by God's grace alone, through faith in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, should enjoy their bread and their wine with one another, with thanksgiving and praise. And then Solomon doesn't stop there. I probably would have. He doesn't stop. He goes on to attire... And to grooming, let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. White clothes meant clean clothes. Solomon's not talking about the color of your attire. He is talking about cleanliness. In other words, my translation, don't be a dirty, sloppy slouch. Likewise, oil was used in grooming. Oil signified health. It signified vigor. It signified joy. Look, there's nothing godly about being ugly. Maybe that's one of the posts we put. Tweet, Pastor John. Nothing godly about being ugly. You heard it here, right? But here's the point. The, the concept of this one verse is, is that take care of yourself. Take care of yourself because you're a child of the king. It doesn't hurt to be clean and looking good also for the one you love. Because marriage is a gift from God. For those who are called to it. Marriage is a a covenant union of one man and one woman. And it includes enjoying the simple pleasures of life together. Yet how often do we take our spouses for granted? How does everyone else get your best and you bring home the leftovers? Here is a command that every married couple here today needs to hear. And let me add, this is a command especially for married couples with young children still at home. Enjoy life with your spouse all the days of this short life on planet earth. Because I can tell you, as an empty nester, the kids leave. And you better love the one you're with. Because the kids are gone. And I'm also going to tell you as an empty nester, I'm glad they're gone. You're going to get an amen, right? And they're probably watching today. And they're like, what? What did you just say? Because we're having a great time. <laughs> And believe it or not, such an attitude carries over into work. In fact, one commentator says that one of the general themes of Ecclesiastes is teaching us how we should view work. As God has called us to work, He has called us to keep creation. To work out our calling. And so, Solomon says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in the grave. Think about it this way. If our chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever, then we glorify God in fulfilling our creation calling, working to the glory of God. And this is what the Apostle Paul was getting at when he wrote to the the Colossians. He says, whatever you do, work heartily as to the Lord. And so... I'm saying, let's bring back the Protestant work ethic, right? And let's teach ourselves, and let's teach the next generation to find satisfaction in a job well done. Here's what I'm getting at, and I'm just walking through, as you know, verse by verse here. All these happy pleasures are given by God to be enjoyed. Commanded to be enjoyed. But this doesn't mean that we will enjoy all of them. doesn't mean that we'll enjoy any of them all the time. Nor do any of these pleasures negate the reality that we live in a fallen world full of sin and misery. That's still true. But what it does mean is that God gives us simple things in this life. Before we die, so simple that we forget about them. And I'm guilty of this. That we take these simple things for granted. Happy pleasures to be enjoyed. Giving thanks and praise to God for them. And it is through these happy pleasures that we get a glimpse of what is to come. Let me repeat that so you don't miss it. It's through these happy pleasures of God right here and right now. It's through them that we get a glimpse of what's to come. In Marilyn Robinson's brilliant novel, Gilead, the narrator, Congregational Minister John Ames, who is nearing the end of his life, he is writing a letter to his very young son, a child of his old age. And it's a lengthy letter that he intends for his son to read when he is older, well after the death of his father. And there are several themes in this novel, one of which is the beauty of friendship. And Reverend Ames' lifelong best friend is Reverend Robert Boughton, the town's Presbyterian minister. And one day, Ames goes over to visit Boughton who is also nearing death, and finds him sitting out on the front porch enjoying the cool breeze and the smell of fresh-cut grass. And he's also thinking about heaven. Ames recalls this. Boughton says he has more ideas about heaven every day. He said, mainly, I just think about all the splendors of the world and multiply by two. I'd multiply by ten or twelve if I had the energy, but two is much more sufficient for my purposes. So he is just sitting there, multiplying the feel of the wind by two, multiplying the smell of the grass by two. That's brilliant. And in a sense, Boughton is taking... Solomon's counsel and he's translating that counsel into thoughts of heaven multiplying the happy pleasures of God by 2 search as we may work as we might we will never find heaven on this earth but through the enjoyment of God's simple pleasures the splendors of the world we'll get a sense of what's to come for all who are in Christ Jesus. And in in this sense, life is truly beautiful. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, forgive us for taking your gifts for granted. Forgive us for looking past those simple pleasures and the joys of a simple life, worrying, fretting, sinning against You by coveting, and all the ways in which the world, our flesh, and the devil would lead us astray. We thank You, most of all, for the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ, that it is in Him that we find true life, and it is through Him that we can truly enjoy all of the gifts that You have given us. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon. We hope you have grown in your knowledge of and love for God. Covenant Presbyterian is a PCA church that meets for worship on Sunday mornings at 1030 a.m. Our address is 120 North 9th Street in historic downtown Fort Smith, Arkansas. For more information about Covenant, visit our website at www.cpcfs.org.